I want to, if, if you will indulge me for one more week of history, I'm still trying to get a foundation laid for a point I'm trying to make, and at this point, I think I can make the point by November. Um, I, we've been talking, I've been talking, I've been the one doing all the talking, but I've been talking about this idea of what I've been calling the cross, Jesus, and, the, and early Christians. Because we, kind of the premise that got me started down this road was a statement that was made when Joe Jansen was here where I said and he said, it's really about the gospel. And as I've said a couple times now since that, that's easy to say it's about the gospel. The question is, which gospel? There's a lot of gospels out there. There's a lot of things that float around that people say, well, that's the gospel. This is the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? What are we actually, as a Christ follower, what am I believing? What's my foundation? What is the, the, the um, I'll use this term, what is the lens of understanding that I'm using when I say Jesus is the Christ? What is the lens I'm using when I start interacting with someone and in my mind, I'm presenting to them the gospel? Um, I would like to think I get to do, I get to present a pure gospel. I, I, and I firmly confess, I don't. The gospel I'm presenting does come through some lens that I'm carrying. It does come through some biases that I carry, that you carry. Each of us reads scripture, and it's amazing because like at Chat, Chew, and Connect, one of the things we discover on a weekly basis, we're all reading the same scripture, and we all have a slightly different view of what it is we just read and what we're talking about. And sometimes it's not a slightly different view. It's a very different view. You go, wait a minute, it's the same sentence. Well, why do we have different views? Because we have lenses, we have biases. And lenses and biases, I think I've said this, are not all wrong. They are just lenses and biases. And so, you know, for me, after, you know, in all the years that I've been a Christ follower and um, all the years that I've spent in the scriptures, which I absolutely love, one of the things that I love most is at 65, I'm still discovering who God is. He's still revealing himself. He's still showing me stuff. It's like, and some of them are some, are, are some of the most simplest and basic of scriptures that we've all used. I've probably preached hundreds of times. And you go, that, okay, you at least should have that worked out by now. And yet on a certain day, Holy Spirit turns that again and you go, oh my goodness. That word has been hiding right there in the sentence the whole time. And I never saw it. And a whole new reality and depth of scripture comes to us. And I, I know I've said this, that in all, I, I read a lot, and in, but I've never read any book like the Bible. I have read a couple books in life twice. I have other books that are reference books that I go to 
on some basis because I want to get this or that that I remember the author had said. So I have those books, but I've never had an experience with any book like I continually have with the scriptures. You'll go, well, I just think it's a book that man has written. Well, man has written it, yes. It is a book, yes. But there's something about that book. And um, even in the midst of people that go hard at trying to pull that book apart, it's still here and it's still speaking. And a lot of the people that worked so hard and gave their whole life to tearing the book apart, we can go visit their grave, but the book is still here. And it's still speaking. And people, and this, this, I think all of us in this room, I probably am safe to say we've had this experience. I can definitely say for me, I've had this experience. When... This book called the Bible has spoken to me at very specific times in my life where I had no idea what life was going to look like beyond where I was and had no to little hope that life could ever be different. This book spoke to me. And it changed my life again. Now, in saying what I just said, obviously I know that Holy Spirit is behind it and that, you know, these are just words on paper. I, I'm not, it's not magical. It's inspired. It's not magical. It's living. And it's living because the author of this book is living. And he has something to say. And he'll speak one day with a black squirrel. And he'll speak another day with a verse. He's speaking. And he's inviting us to come and hear and to be in relationship with him. So that being said, uh, again, I don't want anything I'm trying to present to look like um, I'm tearing scripture down, what I'm hoping is, especially in kind of this historical stuff I'm trying to give us, it actually brings a a deeper sense of the scriptures to us. Because one of the things that we, I think it's important to to see when, when Jesus came and you have, you have a group of people who on one day are just Jews. Fishing, going through life, being oppressed by the Romans, trying to figure out how to love their wives, love their husbands, what to do with their kids. They were just Jews. And on a certain day, this guy just walks past them and says, why don't you come with me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And this is astonishing to me. They go, all right. the wildest thing. I mean, in today's world, if you go, could you move out of my way? What are you doing? What do you mean? What do you mean? I move out of your way? What do you mean move out of your way? I'm, you know, I'm in your way. Everybody wants to argue over everything. These guys say, all right. 
And they follow him. Just go. So they were Jews living in a Jewish culture, having been raised their whole life within this culture. And the way they saw God was how they lived within this culture. So as a Jew, I went to temple. I was there for the high holy days. I, from my very earliest experience, I was taught the Passover Seder to the point that probably by the time I'm four or five years old, I can recite the whole Seder. Because every year, I mean, our whole family comes together. It's special. It speaks to me. It's like that special time. Like for us, maybe Christmas Day dinner is that big event. And from as far back as we remember, the family's there and it's a special day or whatever is those special family moments. Well, for me being a Jew, Passover was that special moment. It wasn't just a meal. It was the story. It wasn't just the meal. It was the history of who we are. It wasn't just a meal. It was about a liberating God that took my ancestors out of something and brought them into something else. So it was rich in picture. It was rich in emotion. It was rich in the fact that it involved me. It taught me. I recited it. I learned it. Another event that would have been equally important. So Passover would have been considered uh, or is considered even today one of the high holy days on the Jewish calendar. There's others, but Passover is very central. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But on another day, it would be the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement was the highest holy day that as a Jew I would have celebrated. And again, the stories would have been told. The stories would have been told of Moses, of Aaron, of being able to come in only once a year to, into the Holy of Holies, to offer the blood, to know that God had warned them, don't take this lightly. You don't walk in there anytime you want. It's very specific. We would have carried those stories. I would have known all about the Day of Atonement. I would have known that the most important thing I can do for the year is to be at temple with my sacrifice, either for me individually or for my family, on the Day of Atonement. Because when the blood was shed, we were covered for another year. And the word atonement, we're going to, I'm not teaching on atonement today because we're going to get to that. But the word atonement in Hebrew really means, it means to cover, but it also means at one It means once the blood has been shed, I'm now at one again with Yahweh. Anything that would have separated me has been removed, and now I'm at one with him. So the Day of Atonement would have been hugely important to me. And it, again, it would have brought the emotions along. All these stories bring emotions. Because it's, it's easy at times to, to start to read the scriptures, and then they just become words on a page. And we don't fully understand, or we don't, not that we don't understand possibly, but we, we don't step into the story. We just read the story and it sits there and I sit here and, and I, I mentally understand the story. I don't step into the story. I believe we're invited to step into these stories and that if I'm fully going to comprehend the majesty of Jesus, 
the glory of Jesus, the power of Jesus, all that he represented, I have to step in emotionally. That's his invitation. So again, here's these people who were just Jews. They were just doing what Jews do. They were living under the oppressive rule of Rome and all that Rome did as the occupier. That's, that's what they knew. And on a certain day, this man steps into their life and they agree to follow him. And in that agreement, their life could never go back to just being a Jew. They had eternally changed and they didn't even know what had happened, where they were going, or fully understood everything Jesus was saying to them. They're, they hear the term Messiah, but that didn't carry the same meaning. Now, we get to look back and when we use the word Messiah, we wrap it into our Christian understanding of what Messiah is and what he did and what he accomplished. But if I was a Jew in that day and you talked to me and we got talking about, you know, Daniel 9 and what, what's about to happen and like the timetables there, the rabbis are talking about this. We know that we're in the calendar time when something is going to happen. Messiah is going to come and it could happen in my lifetime. It could, it, it, could be with, it could be this year. I mean, we had, you know, at the birth of Jesus, read through the early chapters of Luke. We have people in the temple day and night praying and interceding and waiting because they knew the hour had come. They weren't just off on some rabbit trail because they didn't know what else to do. No, they actually got it. They were waiting so much so that when Jesus comes into the temple to be dedicated, they know it's him. How did they know it's him? He was just another baby. Didn't have Messiah on his forehead. His parents didn't look like any weird, you know, didn't look like some, something different. They looked like every other parent that was coming in, toting a baby for dedication. And yet, those people, well, oh my goodness, he's the one we've been waiting for. How in the world did they know that? Why were they even thinking about that? Because everybody was thinking about it. And, and again, here I am, I'm a Jew, I'm living under the oppression of Rome. And we know how harsh that is. And we know how many people that, that were, were family or friends have either been killed or arrested or enslaved. We know the harshness of this occupation. We live with it day in and day out. We know that if I'm walking down the street and a Roman cohort is coming towards me, I don't challenge their position on the street. I get out of the way. I get really out of the way. I prefer to find an alley and I'll just go in a different direction because I don't even want them to see me. Just making eye contact with them is dangerous and they're everywhere. So I'm living under that tension. And so again, let's, let's look at Passover and let's look at, um, let's look at the Day of Atonement in, in the, the feast days. So Passover... For, for a Jewish person, when I, when I would take Passover, what I was looking at was liberation. There was a time and a place where my people were under the oppression of Egypt. And God rose up a Messiah, a Moses, and he was the liberator. And so through God's strategic plans, 
my people, my ancestors, and I could trace that back. You know, we're all playing with genealogies now. Well, they knew theirs. You know, I, I'm from this tribe. I could trace that back. And my ancestors were under this huge oppression by the Egyptians. And God brought forth a liberator. And we were brought out of the land. And so when I thought about Passover, when we would have the Passover Seder, when it, we haven't done it here in a while, but one of the, one of the, the well, the closing statement in the Seder meal is everyone at the table says, and next year in Jerusalem. There was always the expectation that next year the liberator Elijah will come. So we would stir our hearts with hope that next year we'll celebrate in Jerusalem. Next year we'll be liberated. Next year the oppressor will be broken from us. Next year the Psalms that we read, like the Psalm that we started with today, will be fulfilled. The other thing as a Jew that I understood was when the liberator came, that I, we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but the, in, in, in our line of theology as a Jew, I would have been um, well-trained, I guess if I say it that way, in that we Jews have a problem. God wants to have relationship with us. We want to have relationship with him. We start having relationship with him, things are good. But we have this ongoing problem. We also love idolatry. And so God is good for a while, but idolatry is better. So we end up in idolatry. And from idolatry comes sin. And from the sin of idolatry comes captivity. Because we, uh, I, I, um, so I love the picture when you said God put, put you in his heart and closed his heart, but you're there as long as you want to be there. If you don't want to be there, you can leave because love doesn't control. So here I am. I'm a Jew. I'm doing good. I'm trying to follow all the commandments. I'm walking with God. But then idolatry comes along. So I start creating a different God. There's things I, you know, I don't like about the God I've been following. So I'll just make him into something else. And when I do that, I step out of the rest that Ann was talking about. And now I'm back into being under the yoke of work. Because I'm either going to walk with the living God and his blessing, or I'm going to create another God and come under the captivity of the God that I create. And of course, when I do that, I blame the living God for creating the mess that I'm in with the fake God. So I live that way for a while. And then finally, I go, maybe if I cry out to the living God, louder than I've been talking to the God I created, maybe the living God will have mercy on me and will come and get me out of the mess I've got myself in. And the story of the scripture is, he does. Over and over and over and over and over again, he comes back, even when he says, I've divorced you, he shows back up and goes, 
but I will remarry you. If you don't want me, I'll divorce you. I've always wanted you. And at a certain point, we come back and go, it was a terrible mistake I made. I don't know what I was thinking. Please have mercy on me. Please come get me out of this pit I'm in. And he does. And he brings me back out. And life is good, maybe for a generation. But idolatry comes back. And so as a Jew living in a time of Jesus, I'm well aware of our history of in and out, in and out, in and out. God is merciful. God lets us have our way. God is merciful. God lets us have our way. And that's been our history. At the time that Jesus came, what, as a Jew again, what I was expecting was when Messiah comes, because Daniel has told us, the timeline is here, Messiah is coming. When Messiah comes, two things are going to happen. One, Messiah will liberate us from the bondage that we're in. And this time, when Messiah comes, we won't ever return to idolatry again. We'll finally, in Messiah, get it right. And the other thing that will happen is, when Messiah comes, the fact that we get liberated is because our sins have been forgiven. Messiah will forgive, and our iniquity will finally be removed from us. And we won't ever go back to iniquity again. And we'll finally be the nation of kings and priests that God said we were supposed to be when Messiah comes. That's what they were expecting. That's what every story led to. That's what temple time, high feast, all the feasts of the year, that's what they all were telling us. That this is the time when Messiah, the forgiver of our sins and the liberator of our oppression, will come. It's what we expected. It's what we were looking for. The problem is, Jesus shows up, and in the beginning, it looked really good. He's like doing stuff nobody else is doing. He's got people following him. I mean, not only can he take care of our sicknesses, but with this Messiah, We're not even going to have to work for food anymore. I mean, he's just going to take a little something. Next thing you know, all of Galilee is full. This is like better than we ever anticipated. The Romans are gone. We're feasting. No more sin. We're liberated. Our bodies are being healed. Man, this is good. This is really good. People that are demon-possessed are walking around free. The demons are gone. Wow, this is awesome. This is better than any Messiah I had expected. And so we're all tapping in. Except that Jesus is looking at him at some places going, you're only following me because I'm feeding you. You don't even get what I'm here for. It's not about this food. Because I have food that you don't know anything about. It's about that food. And they're like, yeah, okay, tell us the stories, but when are we going to do that whole bread thing again? Yeah, it's getting close to lunch, man. What are we doing? Yeah, Yeah, it's going to be great. Um, 
So that was, that was, you know, so now Jesus comes and we're, first we're really buying in. This is going to be awesome. He's going to throw off the Roman rule. He's going to throw off the oppressors. But then he gets arrested. And then he gets crucified. And that creates a real problem for me as a Jew. And with what, with what time we have left today, I want to I kind of focus on that piece. So we have, we have the cross, and we've already talked about the cross in weeks past, you know, what it represented. And <clears throat> so Jesus gets crucified, and then the early church, the disciples and, and those in the early church, as they start to put together the, the New Testament, they start to put together the gospel. There's like a huge theological shift that happens. Because again, I'm using, I'm borrowing this word from N.T. Wright. The revolution has begun. It started on Good Friday. When Jesus, by the time Jesus said it is finished, the revolution had started and it's never stopped. But what is that revolution? What did change? What was finished? And so Jesus gives himself to be crucified, but that's problematic for me as a Jew. One, my whole construct of Messiah had, was not somebody dying on a cross. That's the most shameful way to die. That ties into everything that Rome, about Rome that I hate. And to, to give yourself to die by crucifixion? How do I even wrap myself around that? What, what is happening? I don't, know, I don't know what to do with that. And I, I, I can't say that I feel I even remotely can understand the emotions that those that were part of Christ's inner circle, the 12 disciples and even going out to the 70 and beyond, I, I, don't, I can't put myself, I don't think, in the emotional spot where they were at. But how traumatic it had to have been to, stood, to, to have stood there that day looking up at this man who I had given my life to, so brutalized that he's unrecognizable, yet hanging on a cross and breathing his last breath. What, what the heck has just happened? Because the, the sense of hopelessness had to have been huge. The sense of being forsaken had to have been huge. And the sense of fear had to have been huge. If they've killed the leader, it's only a couple days before the rest of us are gone. And we've seen what the Romans do to groups of people that start an insurrection. They'll line the streets with us and crucify us like they crucified him. There had to be such an emotional trauma 
that was happening in each of these people. I, 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 can't, I can't put myself, I don't think, emotionally there and do it any justice. So I've, I've tried to go there a couple times and I finally just gave up and said, ah, I'll just take your word for it. So we all knew, as well, I'm standing again, if I'm John or Mary or even people that were just, the Roman soldiers that were there, the, the, the other observers that were there to, to watch this spectacle, if I had been there, there were three things that I would have known instinctively because I've seen it all my life. Three things that the cross says to everybody that's watching a crucifixion. The first one is the cross has a social meaning. It says, we, the Romans, we are superior and you, those that we crucify, are vastly inferior. So it has a social meaning. It has a political meaning. We are in charge and you and your nation mean nothing. So it was, it's governmental. It has a political meaning. And finally, it has a religious or a theological meaning because Rome, what they said to everybody is the goddess Roma and the son of God, Caesar, are the highest deities. And we subjugate any other deity that claims to be superior to Roma. And so when Pilate said, put on the cross, king of the Jews, Pilate knew exactly what he was doing. He was making really all three of these statements in that plaque that said king of the Jews. You say you're king of the Jews, you're the one nailed to this tree as your life runs out of you. You call yourself king? Well, if you're king, come down. Come on, do it. Just do it. And there Jesus hung. So, as we, as we put ourselves in that place, and I, I believe that this is important, which is the reason why I keep, I'm stressing this and kind of repeating some of this. I believe it's important because I believe that we, in Western culture and in today's culture, oftentimes we have, we have in our effort to simplify, simplify the cross, in my effort to try to explain the cross, if I'm not careful... I end up minimizing the cross. I won't say that that's my intention when I start, but I will say it is the result of what I try to do. We try to just put the cross into this package so we can represent it to people and they get what we're talking about. So, there's a couple questions that the, that the historians and the theologians of that time and probably even to today are asking and need to ask. The one first is, how and why did the cross acquire so quickly a different symbolic meaning? 
So I just told you how we all would have viewed the cross if we were Jews. But now you start reading the Gospels, you start reading the New Testament, and the writers have shifted the cross into something else. It's not a place of shame. It's the place of victory. It's not a place where uh, it it only represents all the, the three areas that I just spoke about, but they now write it and say, no, the cross represents the kingdom of God. The cross represents the victory that Jesus had. They start redefining the cross, and it happens quickly. Now, even in that, I think we have to, to, to give space for, again, if we're the disciples, if we're the early, we're Paul, we're the, the early uh, new converts to this thing that ultimately will be called Christianity. In the beginning, it didn't even have a name. For a while, it was called the way. And then ultimately, the word Christian was attached, which was extremely derogatory. It wasn't a good word. It was the worst word they could come up with. So all of a sudden now, we're, I, I'm a Jew and my whole world, the lens that I'm working from is this lens of Passover, this lens of atonement, this lens of my culture. And everything about it is told me that God does something a certain way. And now Messiah comes, and I've actually believed that this is Messiah, I'm, I'm trying to get there with my heart. I'm trying to understand this. But to understand who Jesus is as Messiah, it's got to be radically different than the Messiah I was looking for. Because, you know, even if, and we'll, we're going to get into this in a couple of weeks, but even if we use, how, well, how often the word sacrifice is in the New Testament? Jesus is a sacrifice. And it, and it relates Jesus as sacrifice over and over again. Do you know that for a Jew, how difficult just that statement is? Because as a Jew, human sacrifice is, is something I would never remotely go near or consider. It's hugely off limits. So now as a Jew, I'm trying to reconcile Christ was sacrificed for us? What? How... How's that possible? And now you're calling him Messiah? And we're still wrestling with that concept today. Did God brutally kill Jesus because he was mad? Did something else happen? What, ha- what is this thing called atonement? What is this thing that we're all doing? Where, where's God in this whole thing? We're still asking those questions. Actually, it's the hot debate going on right now in, in certain circles. Um, and it was true then, too. I, I, I would have stood there as one of the disciples going, what just happened? Because Jesus said that he's now brought the kingdom. What does that mean? And where is it? Because when I look around, you're telling me God's kingdom has come, but the Romans are still in charge. So God, is it your kingdom or their kingdom? And if it's your kingdom, where is it? Their kingdom, I kind of can figure their kingdom out. 
I know where to go to the magistrate office. I know what their soldiers look like. I know what their practices are. I know what their laws are. I got their kingdom. Your kingdom. Where is it? How do I find it? Does it find me? Do I find it? When it finds me or I find it and now it's somehow in me? What does that mean? Do I carry this around? (laughs) Says the Holy Spirit. I... These are, these are all things that are, that are stirring. And I think sometimes for us, we sit here now as, you know, Christians in this time, and which is why I say we minimize, not often intentionally, but while, but while trying to explain something, we minimize it and we almost make it too familiar. So how did this, how did this symbol of the cross change? from a a symbol of execution and shame to a symbol of victory and liberation and forgiveness of sin. Everything that I was looking for at Passover and and uh, on the Day of Atonement and even even, uh, the other feasts, everything I was looking for now is actually summed up in the cross How is that even possible? And then the early writers, how do you write about that? How do you find language for that? This was was no easy task. Second question. What precisely did the revolution mean about God, the world, Israel, humanity? If the revolution began and a, and a new covenant has begun, what in the world does that mean? Who's in, who's out? How do you get in? Can you get out? We're trying to, because again, I've lived in this Jewish culture that, you know, we, we can now look backwards and criticize the law. But the law gave me boundaries that I knew how to live by. I could be, there could be things about the law I didn't like, but they gave me boundaries that I knew how to live by. And they gave the society I lived in structure. And we knew how to treat each other. And we knew how life should look in this community as we followed Yahweh. What? What? Now there's no law? What? The law of love? What does that mean? Who gets to define that? One says, I do this because I love you. Another one says, I do this because I love you. The third one said, well, of course I love you or I wouldn't do that. And I might be sitting here going, well, none of it feels particularly loving to me. The law at least said, you do this, that's the consequence. So I could order myself. Now this new covenant, I don't know, it's kind of all over the place. And not only that, 
But we've been waiting for Messiah because Israel was going to be restored and we were going to be the great nation that we've always dreamed of where Yahweh is at the center and you know, the, the Davidic uh, kingdom is, has risen again and everything is great. And then this new covenant shows up and good grief, he's given it away to everybody. That's not what I was bargaining for. I'm a Jew. We've put up with this for a long time in anticipation that when the kingdom came, we're on top. The kingdom finally comes according to you, Jesus. And dang, now we're like everybody else. I didn't bargain for that. I wanted to be on top, at least for a little while. Couldn't we have like a year or two? But now you're saying that this goes to everyone. What does it mean? How do we live with all this stuff? It kind of gets, I, I can see where at a certain point after the Exodus, the Jews look back and go, you know, I think I would like leaks by the Nile in Egypt rather than this thing we're in now where we've been liberated. But this liberation isn't all it's cracked up to be. Maybe being a slave wasn't so bad. But when we were slaves, of course, it was horrible. But you give us a little time and memories, you know, lose their sharpness and ah, maybe it wasn't so bad after all. Yes, it was. You know, maybe, maybe in these, some of the, the Jews in this first, first group of people are looking going, I don't know, man, this whole Messiah thing, maybe it could have just waited till I died and let the next generation do the whole Messiah thing. You know, Rome was bad, but it had its good days. Everybody doing okay? Does this make sense? Thank you for being kind with that. So I'll try to land here. When I try to, in a sense, capture salvation capture Jesus and bring it down to some kind of simple slogan that I can just repeat and people can repeat after me. And, you know, this, now this is going back many years ago and I, and I want to just state up front, I'm very thankful for deliverance. Um, but there was a time in this church under a certain person's leadership that the goal was to have the annual vision and then keep pushing the vision so that, you know, if, if you just went to somebody and said, oh, well, you must attend the house of praise. We could just, that's our vision. Because we all knew it. We knew how to say it. We would just say it. Um, 
So there's times that we try to boil stuff down to like, well, I just need to get it into some sound bite, some simple slogan. And what I want to submit to us is that we can't, if we attempt to do that, then we've minimized the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection and the power of the ascension. These are not simple, easy things that can be put into a slogan. The problem is, if I, if I take the resurrection, you can't, or the, if I take the crucifixion, you can't take the crucifixion and just stick it in any worldview because it doesn't fit. The only way you can deal with the crucifixion is the worldview comes to it. And instead of uh, the, the crucifixion or the resurrection, instead of those being captive within a particular worldview, those events will take a worldview captive. That's the only way that it can work. There's no place for them to be in cohabitation. They either are, and you believe them, or they're not, and you don't. There can be no, this this like trying to socialize, or as uh, depending on where you look at it, some people say, well, this is about the historical Jesus. If it doesn't fit, if you're going to just try to minimize Jesus to a historical figure, you can do that, but you're not talking about Jesus. It doesn't fit. And every one of us have had to make that place, that decision. And this is what I want to submit to us. When we, when we look at the crucifixion, when we look at the resurrection, when we look at the ascension, and those things start to have impact in our life, they're changing us. They're taking us captive. We're not taking them captive. I can never, I can never take it captive. And in each of those, and this is the, the struggle that many of us have, and, I, and it actually becomes, for me, it's a certain concern today with, um, Rob did a great job a couple weeks ago with talking about deconstruction and, the, and just, I, I thought he did a great job that Sunday. Um, but even when we move towards people that are geared towards a deconstruction way of thinking or trying to give a, 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 a lot of analysis to the scripture. If what your goal is, is to remove mystery, you're on the wrong page. Because I, I can have a certain level of mental understanding, and we all should. I mean, what I'm doing right now is, is about that. But I'm telling you, if we're going to walk in relationship with the living God and hear his voice, every one of us are going to have to accept mystery and be willing to live with it even when it creates tension. Because God isn't a formula. God isn't just a group of words put on a page that I can 
memorize and pair it back when required. To have that relationship with God is be able to have those mystery days where it just doesn't make sense. Those mystery days where I feel forsaken yet knowing that I'm not. Those mystery days when prayer that I've cried out isn't answered, but I know he's always faithful. Those mystery days where it feels like my life is going to hell and yet he says, I'm working all things for good. I got to be able to live in that mystery if I'm going to hear and know him. Otherwise, all I've done is tapped into a philosophy and brought it into just an intellectual understanding. And I will submit to you, at least out of my own experience, every time, and I've tried to do that at various times in my life, but every time I've gone there, it's always failed me. It's only in the mystery that I have life. It's only in the mystery that I have resurrection. It's only in the mystery that I have ascension. And I can't explain it. The good news is I'm not required to. You know, sometimes the best statement we can make when somebody's like, well, I don't understand. Why do you Christians do this? And they're doing their little thing about wanting all the answers and everything put on all, you know, all this stuff. One of the wisest answers we can have is like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, man. That's a mystery. And then watch the top of their head blow off. (laughs) But you can go on and rest in life. And their head will blow off several times until finally they come to a place, prayerfully, where mystery is acceptable. Okay, so. Yeah, when I put all this down today, I didn't think I had much notes. <laughs> so I'm jumping over now a whole bunch of stuff, and I'm just going to close with this. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2 is the hinge point of the new covenant. It is where we look and see the Christ humbling himself, not not seeing to grasp equality or not seeing equality with God as something to be grasped. What are you saying? Did he not know he was God? Yeah, he knew he was God. 
but he knew why he was here. And so he would not grasp and take on God. He knew to, to, to bring victory to this thing finally, to be Messiah, to be the Passover, to be the atonement. He was going to do it as a man. Had to do it as a man. So he chose not equality with God, but he chose equality with us, and yet without sin, so that in him we could have life. And I'll stop right there. Father, I, I, I thank you. I thank you for this incredible story that's your story. That you have always been the God that comes. Even when we've pushed you away, even when we've created other gods, you've always been the God that comes. And ultimately in the Son, you come. That in this new covenant, we can come and actually experience what Israel had longed for throughout its history. That not only are we liberated from the bondage of sin, but our sin and our iniquity is forgiven. So there's no separation. And you've made us now new creations. Thank you. Thank you for loving us this much and demonstrating that. Amen.